0: Let's look to the Lord in prayer. We've got some exciting things in his word today. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can open your word together. Thank you that your word is settled in heaven. Your word is what's important. Thank you for Wycliffe Bible translators and for their attempt to see that people all over the world can have your word in their language because there's nothing more important for them to be reading. Thank you that today we're at a pivotal spot in your word where we learn of the Lord Jesus, and who he really is. So we thank you for this now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Believe it or not, I'm picking up where we left off in our study of Matthew's gospel, picking up from June 18th, 2017. So I'm sure that all of you remember where we were that day. (laughs) You remember what happened in the first several verses of Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus was in a, one of many skirmishes with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we're now at the end of that kind of a thing, and now there's something very, very important that is happening today. So in Matthew chapter 16, let's begin reading with verse 13, and I think a great custom has come upon all the Union Church. Let's stand together as we read Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Verse 13. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Thank you, you may be seated. <laughs> Quoting from one of my favorite commentators on this passage, he says this, This passage represents the climax of Jesus' teaching ministry. Stop and think about that the climax of Jesus' teaching ministry. Jesus had been doing a lot of things. We'd been seeing them in Matthew. He'd been healing a lot of people, doing a lot of different kind of teaching in a lot of different ways. But this is the ultimate. This is the climax. It was, in effect, the Apostles' final examination. Sorry to use an expression like that so close to the time that some of you just got out of school. But the good news is that for many of you, it is 66 days till school starts Again, But he says, it was, in effect, the apostle's final examination consisting of but one question, the ultimate question that every human being must face. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? And he goes on from there to say, a person's answer is of the most monumental importance because on it hinges his eternal destiny. It is a question that no one can escape or avoid. Every soul, as it were, will be pinned against the wall of eternity and forced to answer that question. So you can see that we've entered into our study of Matthew into something that is extremely important. For every one of us and everyone that we have a chance to talk to about the Lord Jesus, the important question, who is Jesus? I appreciate Dr. I singing, who is he in yonder stall? Had I been here and we worked together as we normally do, I would have suggested that song. And uh, unfortunately, I hate to insult you in front of all the people here, but he and I often think alike. And and I appreciate the, uh, the Scripture on the Incarnation because that's exactly what I would have wanted to pick as well. So here we are as we start looking at this passage. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's where he asked the important question of his disciples, Uh, Does that make any difference? It does make a big difference. This is part of the story. And if you're able to see what is on the screen in front of us, you can see at the very top is Damascus, and right under there is Caesarea Philippi. And you can see that that's north of Galilee. That means we're pretty far north. You can see as you look further down the south, as you see Judea at the bottom, you'll see Jerusalem just above there. So Jesus is a long way from Jerusalem. He's even now about 25 or 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why is this important? An older commentator, J. Vernon McGee, uh, has this to say. I think it's very, very significant. He says, The Lord Jesus is in the north, and he is in a position from which he is going to turn and begin a movement directly toward Jerusalem and the cross. Before he begins that journey, there are two things that must be clear in the minds of his disciples. One, who he is, and two, what he is going to do. And then he says, my friend, these are the two things that all of us have to be clear on in order to be Christians. We have to know who he is, and we have to know what he did. We need to know these things in order that we might exercise faith and be saved. And then comes Jesus' question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Very important question. Why would he say the Son of Man? You realize he says that a lot, don't you? He uses that title of himself, the Son of Man. Why would he say, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term to use when he refers to himself. He often referred to it as if he were in the third person. Uh, he, He wouldn't say I all of the time. He would say the Son of Man part of that time. He used it 81 times in the Gospels. Please understand, though, that it is a divine title. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's identifying with us as human beings. He's identifying in the incarnation. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's not taking away from his deity, he's identifying with us. He became a human being so that he could suffer and die and he could experience the things that we experience. So when the Lord Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, it takes nothing away from the Son of God. He's God in the flesh, or as Paul put it, God in a body. Jesus, though, was clearly speaking of himself when he used that expression, even though he's speaking in the third person. Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's really saying, Who do people say I am? In fact, that's the way that Mark and Luke both record that. And you'll see that Jesus, if you look down to verse 15, Jesus substituted the personal pronoun I for the Son of Man in verse 15. The Jews all recognize this as a title of Messiah. So when he says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? He is saying, Who do people say that I am? And who do they say that I, the Son of God, really am? Incidentally, the Son of Man was used once in Acts, and it was Stephen who mentioned that. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If in the Gospels there was ever a doubt who the Son of Man was, Stephen here Make sure everybody understands. He's at the exalted position at the right hand of God. He is God himself. And this is the Son of Man that Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? So what was the disciples' answer? You look at verse 14, you'll see that the answer they gave was probably the same one that they would have gotten had they done a poll. It was the same answer that Herod got in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Let me read those two verses. Luke 9, 7, and 8, Herod was wondering what was going on. Who is this Jesus? Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Matthew adds Jeremiah to that list. That would make the total list to include, first of all, John the Baptist. That was Herod's favorite, because he said in Mark six sixteen, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And in Matthew, Herod said this. This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So John the Baptist was a possibility, but there were other possibilities as well. Elijah was one who was mentioned. Many were expecting him to return to the earth with good reason. Because here in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But that wouldn't be until the end. Jesus said at one time that Elijah has come, referring to John the Baptist, but Elijah was still to come at end times. They were expecting him to be back. I expect that he'll be one of the two supernatural witnesses in Revelation, but that's another story. Jeremiah, was another one who was mentioned, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. There were times when Jesus wept. And so some would say Jeremiah would have been a good guess. And there are two verses in the Apocrypha that talk about Jeremiah coming back. Um, I don't believe the Apocrypha is inspired Scripture, and I'm not going to turn to those passages in the Apocrypha, but that's one of the reasons why people at that time could have been thinking Jeremiah was coming back. Or one of the prophets was another possibility. Interesting that millions of Muslims today believe that Jesus was a prophet. In fact, the greatest of prophets, but not God himself. So the disciples' answer basically could have been flattering, could have been very flattering, because there are some very important names that are given here. But then Jesus personalized the question. We always have to personalize the questions that Jesus asks and what Scripture tells us. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Can you imagine Jesus, because these are the pages of God's Word, Jesus saying that to you in a very personal way right now? Who do you say that I am? Can you think of any question that is more important than that one? It's a question that existed at the time of Jesus, continues to exist today. There are still a variety of answers, but only one answer is correct. All of the rest of the answers lead to eternal hell. And the Bible is very, very clear about that. The question was a very popular one. But who do you say that I am? John chapter 12, verse 34. So the crowd, this is now a big crowd. They answered, and we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Matthew's Gospel. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Mark, this is of the disciples. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered. And some say that Peter answered on behalf of all the disciples. Nobody argued with him, and he usually was the spokesman. This is typical Peter. He immediately responds, emphatically responds, and in a short way responds. This is what Peter does. His answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, the Greek language, ho Christos, a very significant word. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah, spelled M-A-S-I-A-H as it comes over from the Hebrew, which means the anointed one. So Peter has just said a mouthful. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that everybody has been waiting for. You're God, in essence, is what he is saying. Well, there are a lot of possible answers that we've seen so far. The disciples said, Uh, we've got all these other people here. We've got Elijah and Jeremiah, John the Baptist and all the prophets and all that type of thing. A lot of other possible answers that Peter has given us one. Who had the correct answer? Tell me. Who had the correct answer? I'm going to hope you're saying Peter. Yeah, Peter obviously had the right answer. And that's reinforced. How is it reinforced? If you notice back in the text, Jesus blessed him for his answer. One writer suggests that Jesus' words of blessing to Peter do not mean that Peter would be rewarded for what he said, but that he had already been blessed by having that revelation made to him. It was already a blessing for him. Jesus declared the source of Peter's answer is coming from God, not from humans. That in itself would have been part of that blessing. Peter would be given honor. Note carefully something in verse 18. Jesus said, And I tell you, that you are Peter. Now, Peter just said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus is saying to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter. Do you think Peter didn't know that? Does that seem a little odd? I'm going to tell you, you're Peter. Well, something's going on here. Peter already knew who he was, but the stating of his name must have been significant, and it was. Jesus made a play on words, with that name. Did you catch that? Jesus is using a pun here. It is okay to do that. (laughs) Just in case anybody was ever wondering if it's not okay to do that, I've known people to do that a lot. And it is okay to be able to do that. You are Peter. Petros in the Greek, meaning a stone or a loose rock. Although you could read a lot of things about this. And people are going to tell you, well, it doesn't mean exactly that. But this is probably what most of the commentators are saying. Petros meaning a stone or a loose rock. And then on this rock, you're Peter, that's your Petros. On this rock, another Greek word, Petra. Greek for a rock or a bedrock. You may be thinking of a foundation there. It is something that is very, very significant. This is a very controversial passage. The question is, who or what is the rock upon which Jesus would build his church? It's controversial because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter was the rock and the church would be built on him. He would be the first bishop or pope of the church, and from him a lot of things emanate. So they use this passage to defend that Peter was the first Pope, the leader from Rome. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but simply to say this, there is no evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. And there are many assertions with the flaw that Peter would have been the first pope or the head of the church or the foundation of the church. James actually was the leader of the church, as we see in the book of Acts. We see Peter oftentimes getting himself in trouble, even later on when Paul had to uh, get after him because he was doing something wrong with the Gentiles. So there are three possible interpretations as to who or what this rock is. First of all, Peter himself. And so Jesus is basically saying to him that you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church, that he's talking to him and about him at the same time, but not as the first pope, but as representing the rest of the apostles. And we'll see a little bit about that in a moment. Another interpretation is that Peter's confession is that rock upon which the church is going to be built. His confession of who Jesus is. His confession of the deity of the Lord Jesus. That that's the rock on which the church is going to be founded. And then there is a third possible interpretation that it is referring to Jesus himself. But I like the comments that are made by one of the commentators. He says this, and and stay with me on this. It'll take a little bit to develop He says, perhaps the most popular interpretation is that Jesus was comparing Peter, a small stone, to the great mountainous rock on which he would build his church. The antecedent of rock is taken to be Peter's divinely inspired confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes on to say, that interpretation is faithful to the Greek text and has much to commend it, And I would agree with that. But it seems more likely that in light of other New Testament passages, that was not Jesus' point. In his letter to Ephesus, Paul says that God's household is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2.20. It therefore seems that in the present passage, Jesus addressed Peter as representative of the twelve. Now looking carefully at what Jesus said in verse 18 again, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice what it says when Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. Jesus was the builder of the church. Jesus was the chief cornerstone of the church, but it doesn't tell us that Jesus was the foundation. Several references refer to Jesus as the rock, but using a different word. Petra is not used of Christ in reference to the church. The word stone in the Greek is the word lithos, which we see, and chief cornerstone, different words than petra or petros, are used. Chief cornerstone Here's a nice word. If you can see the screen, you can say that any way you want to. Uh, there ought to be a law against five vowels in a row. And you can, you can say that any way that you would like to, but that's, that's not the same word that we have here when Jesus is referred to as the chief cornerstone or just a stone, which he is. Now, looking again at a verse I quoted a moment ago, Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's what we're taught here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So looking at the context, everything Christ said in these two verses was to Peter and about Peter. That means that on Peter, he would build the church, but not on Peter alone. Peter would be a part of the foundation since he was one of the apostles. There are a number of noted New Testament scholars who point out that the words Petras and Petra are used interchangeably. And there is a parallel between you are rock and on this rock I will build my church that shows the second rock has to be the same as the first. Now there's a lot to commend itself to the other interpretation that it is on the foundation of the truth about Jesus that the church is built. But I believe that the evidence leans more to the direction that uh, we have Peter being part of that foundation along with the other apostles and that's what is in view here. It's a, uh, an important point, but not as important as what we have here that the Lord Jesus himself has just affirmed Peter's right answer to who Jesus is because that's what's very, very important. Jesus was referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as the foundation of our salvation, but he's never referred to as the foundation of the church, the cornerstone, the builder, the architect, the designer. And even Peter recognized that. Uh, if you can read small print, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, for it stands in Scripture, and this is Peter saying, he ought to know what Jesus meant at that time. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We come to verse 18. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against this church, what Jesus is building on the rock. The gates of hell will not prevail. Prevail means to overcome. It means to overpower. It means to be strong to another's detriment. There would be no stopping the church. There would be no stopping its founding. No, even hell and the gates of hell would not prevail against the apostles. There could be persecution, satanic persecution. There could be all sorts of things going on, but it's not going to prevail against the church. Even the martyrdom of some of the saints, including almost every one of the apostles. The direct attacks attacks of Satan are not going to overpower this church. Death is not going to detain Jesus. The gates of Hades are not going to keep him bound. What does verse 19 mean? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Some think that that refers to church discipline, and I'm one of them but that could certainly include church discipline. Others believe it refers to the fact that Peter was given a unique privilege to open the door of faith to three separate groups of individuals. And we see this in the book of Acts, to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles. And that was something that was given to him, but not to him alone, although he was a chief spokesman at times, but to the apostles once again. Note that, again, that it was not only Peter who was given keys, the authority to open and close doors. Let me quote John 20, 22, Jesus meeting with all the apostles except Thomas after he was raised from the dead. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Matthew 18, 18 includes the whole church in that task as well. When Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. For those of you that love your grammar, There's a periphrastic future perfect participle in here that the New American Standard Version actually honors that in their translation when it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, it literally reads, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That means that neither the apostles nor the church made these decisions. They applied them, that they were made from above. Look at verse 20. Why the warning? Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. It would seem that he would tell them, please let everyone know. Why the warning? Some of you have an NIV study Bible. I would like the note that they have for this. The people had false notions about the Messiah and needed to be taught further before Jesus identified himself explicitly to the public. He had a crucial schedule to keep and could not be interrupted by premature reactions. In other words, the time was not right. He could not bypass the cross. There could be no shortcut To glory. Jesus didn't want these people to get all excited about something. They really didn't know what was going on at that particular time. More needed to be done. And so we come to the end of these verses, but not to the end of our thinking about the important question that is here. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's a very important question. Get it wrong and spend eternity in hell. Peter got it right. According to Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, "Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven." Now what would popular opinion say today in answer to the question, "Who is Jesus?" Popular opinion would still say something like, "He's a great teacher. He was a prophet. He was a great example, maybe even the greatest example that ever lived. He was a good man. He was something very, very special. They're giving the same answers that were given back then. Popular opinion. Let's think of something great that we can say about him. But They were not paying Jesus any compliments at all. It's like saying this today. It's like saying Wayne Gretzky was a good skater. <laughs> now, any of you that know sports, you wouldn't say Wayne Gretzky is a good skater. Arguably, you could say that In baseball, there's somebody that is the best baseball player that ever lived. But there would be a lot of possibilities that would be suggested. The same thing in basketball, the same thing in football, not in hockey. If you ask who was the greatest hockey player who ever lived, I think just about everybody would say Wayne Gretzky. The greatest hockey player by far that ever played. And so to say to him, he was a great skater, um, that would be like saying of Jesus He was a great man. He was way, way, way above that. Some of you have heard me talk about the trilemma. It's something that I've spoken about a number of times. It's the Lord liar, lunatic argument that has been popularized. It's a classic argument, leaving us, though, without being able to say that Jesus was a good man if he wasn't who he claimed he was. If he wasn't God himself, then he couldn't have been a good man. That's the way the argument goes. Let me share with with you in closing this the trilemma, popularized by C.S. Lewis, repeated by many others since then, particularly by Josh McDowell. Um, It's a logical argument. It states that Jesus was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. It's been popularized as mad, bad, or God. And here's what Josh McDowell and some others have said about that. Jesus was either who he claimed to be, God himself, or he was at the polar opposite extreme, an evil imposter or a raving maniac, hence Lord, liar, or lunatic. Notice that the middle ground that people often want to step on, that Jesus was a good man, maybe even a great man, a gifted teacher, an exemplary moral figure, a positive influence on humanity, all of that is logically eliminated. Jesus' distinct claims of being God eliminate the popular ploy of skeptics who regard him as just a good moral man or a prophet who said a lot of profound things. So often that conclusion is passed off as the only one acceptable to scholars or as the obvious result of the intellectual process. The trouble is many people nod their heads in agreement and never see the fallacy of such reasoning. A quote from C.S. Lewis I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg... I've never heard anybody claim to be a poached egg, but that would be some serious lunacy, I think, if somebody were to do that. But he says, Either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And then finally he says this. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus? Peter got it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God. Do you have that right? And if you've got that right, are you willing to pass that on? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this awesome place in your word described as the climax of Jesus teaching ministry. Thank you for how important it is. And thank you that we can learn from that, be reinforced in that, recognize that the Lord Jesus, God himself, deity, divine, the one who came here, identified himself as the son of man so that he could die. And we're grateful and we thank you in his name. Amen.